Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. We're um, in the middle, exactly the middle, because it's a three-part series. Um, say where are my glasses they're here three-part series that that I have entitled sex bomb so if anyone wants to take uh, take uh, um, offense at that um, there was just me nobody else and uh, and last week was awkward wasn't it can we agree that last week was slightly awkward three people they just loved it bring it on yep it was awkward last week was awkward if it was awkward for you think how awkward it was for me and think how awkward it was for me with the 930 congregation I felt like I was speaking to my parents about sex. It was just odd. Um, and today, um, I'd love to say it's going to be less awkward. It's not. Um, but can we just agree not to be embarrassed? Is that okay? I won't be embarrassed if you're not embarrassed, and we'll just talk about sex. Is that all right? Should we pray together? Holy Spirit, we love that you're involved and interested in the real things of our lives. We love that it's not just all kind of a, a spiritual stuff right in the middle of us, but you're interested in bodies and in lives, in challenges, in money, in sex. We ask that you'd encourage us and challenge us in equal measure because we want to leave this place different um, than when we entered it. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. Deal with our hearts. Deal with our hearts. Yes, Lord, thank you. Amen. So, the thing we discovered about good sex last week is that good sex is supposed to be had within a covenantal relationship. And we talked about two kinds of relationships. We talked about transactional relationships, and we talked about covenantal relationships. We said the transactional relationships were the kind of relationship you have with Tesco's, and covenantal relationships are the kind of relationship we have with your husband or wife. Don't mix up the two. You'll get in trouble about those things. And we talked about the fact that sex was a a gift from God that he delights to give us this incredible thing called sex, but he says there is a framework within which this thing operates and operates well, and it's a covenantal framework. And and the the Hebrew people knew that well because they had three words for the word love. Our English language is relatively limited, and they had three words. The three words were rea, aheva, and dod. And Rhea meant, as you will know if you were here last week, it meant relationship love, friendship love, I, I'm your friend, I love you, Rhea. And Aheva, which means, which is clearly a Scottish word, Aheva, which means, that's just a little joke, uh, that means covenant love. It means I love you, I'm committed to you, and I'm going nowhere. And Dode love, which is sexual love, it's a mingling of souls, it's, uh, it's intimacy. And the, the Hebrew guys knew, they didn't always practice this, but they knew that you weren't, will, weren't ready to ahiva until you'd rayat. Not ready to commit everything until you were best friends. And you certainly were not ready to dode until you'd ahivad, until there was total commitment because sex is an incredibly vulnerable thing. And if you, if you practice God's gift of sex outside of that covenant relationship, you get busted, other people get busted, and you break stuff off. Simple. And so we talked about Prostitution, and we talked about pornography, 
We talked about extra covenant sex and pre-covenant sex. And, um, and some of you went home to lie down. Some of you went home to get a room. And some of you went home to have a cold shower. And that's all good with me as long as you did it in the right way and in the right place. And today I want to talk about dating, attraction, and I want to talk about moving towards marriage, and I want to talk about keeping your marriage exciting. You up for that? Hmm, maybe, <laughs> possibly. Hmm, hmm. Okay, you're being very Edinburgh about this at the moment. Are you up for that? Excellent. So, we're going to turn to a passage of Scripture that we rarely turn to. We're going to turn to Song of Solomon, and we're going to look. I mean, we're going to do some real detailed biblical exposition in a sex poem, okay? Song of Solomon 1 and 2, and we're going to take a look at how you do attraction really well and how you do dating really well. Now, I'm really aware that some of you, the moment I said we're going to talk about sex, and the moment I said we're going to talk about dating, the moment I said we're going to talk about marriage, you said, well, that's not me, I'm not up for that, or or I'm not in a dating relationship, or I'm not in a marriage relationship, this is not for me. And I understand what you're thinking. But I need you to know this, that all this stuff is supposed to be talked about and acted out in community. If marriages go wrong, it affects everybody. If young men and women and older men and women are having sex outside of a covenant relationship, it eventually affects everybody. The shrapnel of your busted lives will affect people. And so we're all in this. We're all trying to create an environment within which people might do life well together. Understand that? And your circumstances might change. Might change today. You never know. So let's just take a look together at this passage of Scripture. And we're going to do something really quite weird. We're going to try and learn about a thoroughly modern phenomenon from a thoroughly ancient source. So let's take a look at, um, at Solomon and his lady, and uh, let's read together. And those of you who are thinking, oh, man, poetry, I did this at school. I don't understand any of it. That's me. Um, actually, this is great stuff. So let's listen really carefully, okay? Solomon's Song of Songs, Beloved. Now, Beloved, this is when when you read Beloved, this is the lady speaking, okay? And when you read the word lover, it's the man speaking. And when you read the word friends, it's the friends speaking, okay? So, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes, Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We'll praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Cada, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Don't stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. Tell me, whom I lo- you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare. Now, be very careful, gentlemen, if you ever use this with the lady that you love. 
We'll come to this in a moment. Harness to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make your earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. It's racy stuff, eh? It's good, isn't it? Maybe. Father, we ask that you'd uh, add some help uh, and meaning to what we're about to uh, to talk about right now. Now, just to let you know, last week we talked about um, God's covenant for sex. This week we're going to talk about dating and marriage. And, and two weeks' time we're going to talk about homosexuality. And we're going to do, the, do that not because I really like talking about sex, um, but because um, we, we need to have an opinion. Everyone's talking about it. If you believe uh, Hollywood, everyone's doing it. And so we need to know what God has to say about all this stuff. So let's take a look at what, uh, what God has to say about how you attract one another. You up for this? Shulaman speaks, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She says, hello, you're a nice-looking man, and I want you to kiss my face off. That's basically what it would say today. Your love is more delightful than wine. She thinks, hubba hubba, he's lovely. Now, guys, girls think that. They do. It's not just you who think that about girls. Girls think that. Well, maybe not about you, but they think it about some men. And we read this. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. In other words, you smell good. Young man, make sure you wash well. (laughs) If you want to attract, seriously, I'm going to say that tonight very, very deliberately. Because there are times after our evening gatherings with 300 uh, young guys there when it didn't smell too good afterwards. Make sure you wash well. If you want to attract God's partner for your life, undeodorized armpits and unkempt appearance is not attractive to the female of the species or to the male. So wash your hair, brush your teeth, hang out where the godly girls are, and you've got a chance. (laughs) But what takes precedence over a man's looks and his smell is his character, his virtue, and his integrity. Because she says this, your name is like perfume poured out. And know this, that those of you who hang around the Bible long enough to be a little bit dangerous, that names in biblical times were really important. They talked of character. So that's why the names of God are so important. When you hear the names of God, you know that it comes endued with, with his character and his power. If, if, if his name is healer, he is healer. That's what he does. And, and this is all about character. Our word character comes from the word karak in the Latin. And it actually means an iron tool used to etch metal, stone, or wood. So what she's saying is this, your name, your character is something that is so firm and so permanent and so secure, it's like an etching of the soul. I can trust you. That's what I find attractive. I can trust you. Guys, your character is more important than your looks. 
And some of you are thinking, that's jolly good, because I don't look so hot. But, but your character, your love, your holiness, your honesty, your morality, your ability to listen, those are the things that are important. Girls, you can marry a man who is tall, dark, and handsome, and has got a sculpted six-pack, and has impeccable taste, and a stack of money. But if he will not listen to you, and if he is rude, and if he wants a trophy wife, and if he doesn't compliment you, and if he sulks like a baby, and if he wants just his way, then you're going to marry yourself a small piece of hell if you marry him. Hear that. And, and, and if he is pressing you sexually right now, let me tell you, he doesn't fear God. And if he doesn't fear God when you're dating, what makes you think he's going to fear God when you're married, when he's asked to love his wife as Christ loves the church? What, think, what do you think he's going to think about that? Not an awful lot. You marry a man based on his character. Character is highly prized. The maidens love you. Of course they do, not because of your wealth or your power, or a bit of wealth and a bit of power is good, but character. Okay, we've been dealing with him. What about her? Look at verse 5. She tells us that she's dark. She's dark like the tents of Keda. Now, Kedah was a Bedouin tribe famous for the black wool of its sheep. And the woman says, hey, I'm lovely, but I have what might appear to be a physical drawback. I've got dark skin. Now, we have to pause here just for a moment to recognize how nuts the culture that we live in is. You know, back in the day, she's saying, don't look at me. My skin is dark. And if you live in Scotland... And you're female particularly, and even if you're male, let's be honest, you spend time saying, in the summer, I want to go somewhere hot so I can get a tan. And if you can't go somewhere hot, you spray yourself up. I know. I can tell. You spray yourself up so you can get a tan. And, and the weird thing is this. I was traveling in India this year, and in, in India, if you turn on the television set, all over the adverts are skin creams to lighten your skin. People, people, people. Don't base your life upon culture. It's crazy things. Years and years and years, and years ago, if, if you were an attractive woman, you had to be full and voluptuous, and that was attractive. And you look at all the paintings of all the masters, you got full, voluptuous women. Today, if you believe culture and the way it sets us up to destroy us, you'd think that you have to be a size zero and starve yourself within an inch of your life to look attractive. And our kids are growing up with that kind of idea in their heads. Don't base your life on culture. Jesus' people are supposed to transform culture and create culture, not just follow it. That's got nothing to do with what I'm saying, but I just thought you needed that for free. (laughs) One of the most precious things to a woman was her skin, verse 6. And she's covered up. She says, don't stare at me. And the reason, listen very carefully, the reason, my mother's sons made me take care of the vineyard and I haven't taken care of my own vineyard. She cares for the authority over her before her own good. Listen, guys. When you're looking to dating a girl who can't submit to her parents and can't honor her father and mother, and is disrespectful to every kind of authority around her, what makes you think that she will respect you and honor you and be a good role model for your kids when you marry her? 
hard, isn't it? If she spends all of her time in front of a mirror slapping makeup on, that's what she does with her life. What makes you think that when you marry the girl, she's going to want to grab at life and not just spend time worrying about her face? You marry a woman based on her name and her character and her heart and her integrity and her honor, not based on her looks. And then she says this, why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? Effectively, what she's saying is, I'm not going to prostitute myself to get a man. Really? Yes, Carl. Because the veiled women beside the flocks were the prostitutes. They are the ones who are waiting for the shepherds to finish their job so they can do their job. And she says, I'm not willing to prostitute myself in order to get a man. Ladies, there are certain things that you will not do to get a man. You'll not give up on your relationship with God to get a man. You'll not compromise your walk with Jesus to get a man. I've seen so many people do that. Compromise their relationship with Jesus, compromise their walk, compromise the things that they knew they wanted to do with their life because they desperately wanted to get a man. And I've seen people again and again and again regret that decision. And if you made that decision, when God is gracious and he can redeem stuff and full of love and full of forgiveness and can change things around. Guys, when are you ready to marry? Two things. When you're clear about the standards you have for a mate. You know what you want. You've worked it out. You, you, you know the kind of person that you want to marry, the kind of integrity that you want, the kind of protection that you need. And when you know the things you will not do to get a mate, that's when you're ready. So attraction is a man's character. It's an etching of the soul. Attraction is a woman's character, her heart and her, her honor. Physical beauty is important. Absolutely. You want to be able to say every single day of your married life, hubba hubba, or whatever is your thing. You do. You want to be able to say, wow, you are the most beautiful. Not only have I, as I said last week, have I set my heart and my mind for my wife to be the standard of beauty for me, but actually I want to be able to wake up in the morning and go, I made a great choice. And she wants to be able to go, yeah, I made a great choice. He is a stag. (laughs) Or something like that. Oh, dear. That's what you want to be able to do. But physical beauty is not everything. I'll tell you why. Because everything is going south. Everything. Even with me. It is. There's going to come a moment, guys. You might not think it right now, but there's going to come a moment when you're going to walk out of the shower and your wife will laugh at you. (laughs) And it won't be the kind of... The, the kind of laugh that, that is all fun and exciting, it'll just be she'll laugh at you. She will love you and she will laugh at you. Because things change. And it's funny. Um, but if you marry based upon what you look like, you're in for a world of disappointment. You're going to lose hair. You're going to lose teeth. You're going to increase tonnage. <laughs> so what's going to happen. Some of you guys have not done that. You think, not me. <laughs> No, 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 it's going to happen. I'm afraid at some stage it's going to happen. You don't look the same. Here's the thing. You marry usually in the prime of your physical life. Everything goes downhill from that moment onwards. So don't marry for looks. 
Don't marry for looks. Marry for character. Marry for heart. Don't base your relationship on this. So they're attracted. What do you do next? You have a relationship. Now, some of you think, why did you have to mention that, Carl? I had to mention it for boys. You have a relationship. You don't go from four to do you want to marry me? You have a relationship. You're supposed to have a relationship. You're not supposed to ask her to date you on Facebook. You have a relationship. And what do you need? Look, you need time. Look at verse 12 to 16. And the reason this is really important to say, and it's important to say for some of you who are not trying to build these relationships because you already have, this is really important. Um, These guys need time. This community, I don't know what there is, you know, 800,000 people who are around this community. This community um, is a goldfish bowl for anyone who's trying to date. I watch it all the time. I see, ooh, they're with him. They're, ooh, yeah, sitting together. They're holding hands in church. They must be going steady. And, and, I, and I see this kind of thing, and I see some of the older, the older folks, in, with good meaning, putting loads of pressure on them. You know, are, you, are you setting a date? Do I need to buy a hat? You know, all this kind of, actually, they don't need any of that. They just need to get to know each other. They need to build friendship. They need space and they need time. They don't need you interfering in their lives. They just need you to let them be. And so what happens here, verse 12 to verse 16, they're just spending time in the open. They're walking. They're hanging out. They're sitting down. This is romance. Some of you men who are married probably remember this. Way back. Do you remember? Called Romance. It's what you do to get a wife. Do you remember that? Holding hands and skimming stones, old gold Chevy in a place of your own. You did that. And most of you go, what did he say? It's Elton John, wasn't it? Elton John. And you, just, you, you used to hang out together. You used to talk. You used to be interested in each other's company. You used to do dates. You, when, when you sat together, for, you went out together for a meal and you just talked. And you didn't go to a place where there was football on in the background so you could look and see what was going on. You actually did romance. You remembered each other's little anniversaries. And I don't just mean the anniversary. You know, we did this together. You, you send each, other's, uh, each other cards. You gave each other presents. You remembered stuff that you loved and you did this kind of stuff and then you all stopped because you got married because you're a hunter-gatherer you got your wife you put her over your shoulder and you you succeeded and you don't need to do romance anymore because you're christians and you're covenant committed and she's never walking out on you and we're solid get over yourself date your wife if you love her remind her that you love her every day or somebody else might that's going no place good, is it? You need time. Second thing you need is friendship. Guys, you need to understand that the greatest single sex organ is the mind. How do you cultivate this kind of friendship, this, this raya? What do you say to a girl to win a heart? Check out Solomon. I mean, he should know. He had, I think, 500 wives and 500 concubines. So he ought to be an expert on this. Look at Solomon, verse 9. I liken you to a mare. (laughs) I'll be very careful. 
The mare was not a beast of burden. It was, it was the white mare that led the army of Pharaoh. So he's saying, You're, you are the precious one. You are one in a million. You are beyond value. I want to guard you and I want to care for you above anyone else. I have singular vision. It's you. Girls, how many of you would love your man to say that to you? Come on. Thank you. One person. Everyone, you are. Others of you go, oh, God. Golly, guys, look at what she says about him. Verse 13, my lover is a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Now, now, it's the most precious thing for a woman in the day of limited Chanel number five and uh, limited bathing opportunities was this pouch of myrrh that she held between her breasts. It was her perfume. And, And he says this, this is how to regard each other. You are my mare, you are my myrrh, you are precious beyond recall. Then he says, oh, how charming. That word charming is the same word that David uses of Jonathan. So this is not a sexual word. This is a deep friendship word. This is, we are soulmates. We are covenanted together. You are charming to me. You want to cultivate deep relationship that leads to marriage, that leads to sex? Build a friendship. You know, Nikki is my best friend. Above anybody else. She's who I want to talk to. She's one who I want to have a laugh with. When I find something funny, I ring her up and we talk about things. When I'm struggling with life, she's the one that knows stuff. She knows stuff about me that nobody else knows about me. I know stuff about her. There is a vulnerability. We are best mates and we will always be best mates. There is honor and there is passion. And notice this, gentlemen. You have not put a mitt on her. Solomon hasn't touched her. He hasn't done anything. There is romance and there is honor and there is passion and there is desire and there is restraint. Chapter 2. She feels like a million dollars. I'm the rose of Sharon. I'm the lily of the valley. I'm the most beautiful person in the world. I have incredible value. Her self-esteem is sky high. Now contrast this. Because just a minute ago she was saying, I'm dark. Don't look at me. And now she's saying, I'm the rose of Sharon. I'm the lily of the valley. I'm the most precious thing. What's happened? He has treated her like a queen. A singular queen. And what happens? Her self-esteem rises. Her value rises. And her sex drive rises. Look at verse 5 with me. Strengthen me with raisins. Raisins was an aphrodisiac. In 2 Samuel, when uh, David finally gets the ark back to Jerusalem, there is dancing and there is celebration, and David hands out raisin cakes to all of his people. He says, look, we've, we've got the ark back to the place of the covenant. This is where we should be. God should be honored in this place. Now you need to go forth and multiply. Have some raisin cakes. Off you go. So, so raisins are an aphrodisiac. I admire him, I love him, I want him, and this is really, really good. Young men, let me remind you. If you love her, tell her. Don't make her guess. If you love the girl that you're dating, tell the girl that you're dating. Don't make her guess. She needs to know where she stands. And if she doesn't love you back, back off. Don't stalk her. 
I have enough pastoral issues with young men, Christian men, stalking young ladies because they won't take no for an answer. Back off. Stay away. But if you, if you love her, tell her. Guys, if you're married, if you love her, tell her. Don't make her guess. Tell her how important she is to you. Tell her she's, she is the singular one for you. That there's nobody else that compares to her for you. Tell her. Tell her. I see so many marriages dying through failure to thrive, through lack of attention and affection and adventure. I see it all the time. I see, I see Christian marriages staying together out of duty, but, but they stop doing the things that they got them together in the first place, and now they're just together, and they're not separating or anything. They're just not having any fun anymore. It's sad. You know, I, I, marry, I marry so many people, and they stand here in front of me. I have never had a bride and groom stand in front of me thinking, we just want to get through the next 40 years. That's all. We paid for this wedding. It's a nice wedding and everything else. But we just really want to get through the next 40 years. If we can just survive one another and maybe have some kids and survive them and then just get through, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be happy. All I want is a semi-detached house with a monoblock drive and a flat-screen TV and a nine-to-five job and get my kids in the right school. No one thinks that. Most people settle for that, but nobody thinks that. He wants a princess, she wants a prince, and they want an adventure. So what happened? What happened? Well, you just got suffocated by life. Remember the times when you used to talk? You used to dream and you used to plan. You used to pray together. You used to have big God-centered dreams in your hearts and you wanted to run with those things. And what happened to that? Remember the times when you used to hold hands and you used to kiss and steal a kiss and it was a bit public and your kids are really embarrassed, but you should still be doing that. Come on, embarrassing your kids is part of the deal. That's why we have them. <laughs> Maybe today you just come here and you think this is all a bit weird, but actually all you need to hear is that. You need to re-covenant around what we're doing in this marriage thing because it's boring. And God never intended that for you. So it's gotten racy and she's saying, I want you. I want you, and that's good. She should want you. She doesn't want you. You shouldn't be moving to marriage. I want you. And then you need restraint. Look at verse 7. You need restraint because you're not covenanted yet. It's transactional still. You haven't stood before God and stood before people and said, we're going to go through this thing for life, for better, for worse, for rich, for poor. You need restraint right now. Because everything in you is just wanting to do the thing that you want to do because that's the way you're wired and you love her, and she loves you, and you've honored and you respected, and everything seems, come on, why not? And you need restraint. Verse 7, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Don't go down that path until you're married. Don't open the door to that passion because you will not be able to shut it. It will cause you damage. And God, who's an incredible father, doesn't want you to be damaged. So he says, don't go there. Don't go there. Do you know when you're building a fire, some of the, some of the men will understand. Men, men have this thing, generally men have this thing about fires, I have discovered. You like building them, and if you don't like building them, you certainly like standing with a stick and poking them. And it's probably the only time we ever get real with one another. Two, two, this is an aside, but when, when you're driving with another guy in a car, we can talk about real things because we're facing that same direction. 
and when you're poking a fire with a stick. Something about it. And so some men building a fire, and you know how to build a fire. If you're a real man, someone once taught you how to build a fire, and you can build a fire, I think, one of two ways. Way number one is you get a whole bunch of sticks, logs, you get a can of paraffin or petrol, <laughs> you, you throw the paraffin over it, you get a Zippo lighter, you stand far back and you go, and throw the thing, and it's great fun. And he goes, and it creates, and you have to make sure that your mates are standing far enough away because it can cause some collateral damage. But that's the fire you get. But i tell you what happens with that kind of fire. It goes, and then it dies. <laughs> and you haven't got a fire that you can toast marshmallows on. But the way to build a fire, let me tell you, Carl grills. You get some kindling, and you make sure it's dry. And you get some sheep's wool, and you get one of those flint things that makes you feel like a real man. You have some matches in your pocket because it never works with the flint. <laughs> and, 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 you, and you get the stuff, and you get some, some, some ferns, and you create a ball, and you blow into it, and you get a little bit of embers, a little bit of spark, and you, a, a spark, and you blow into it. And then you get some little sticks on top, and you build it very, very carefully. And it takes time, and you get right down deep with it, and you blow into it, and then you can start to put some, some bigger logs on, and eventually you can put some huge logs on, and that fire will last you all night, and maybe even for the rest of the day, if you keep feeding the fire kind of relationship do you want? The kind of relationship where you, <laughs> and you feel shame and you feel guilty and you feel like it's wrong. And do you want something that builds and it's rich and it's hot and it lasts and you continue to feed it and you do it together and you can talk around it because this is sex as God intended it for your good. How do you know that the guy or the girl that you're moving towards marriage with is the right person? Here we go. Verse 8 and verse 9. Three things. Four things, probably. First thing, you want each other. I once had a couple sit on, a, on, a, on, a, on the, what we used to call the marriage sofa in our study. And they'd come and sit down, and I would always say, what do you love about one another? And they turned and said, well, we don't really love one another, we just think God told us to get married. I said, go away. (laughs) I didn't say it quite as aggressively as that. I said, maybe you should reconsider. Because you have to actually fancy each other. You have to like each other. You have to want to do life together. There has to be something about one another that you love. You need to want each other if you're going to get married. Second thing, your relationship produces life. Look at verses 10 to 13. We're in spring. This is chapter 2. We're in spring and we're in summer. The winter is gone. The figs are ripe. We're in a season of life and of growth. Let me tell you this. If, you're, if your relationship that you're moving towards marriage is not bringing life in you, spiritual, physical life in you and through you, then you ought to question it. I've seen a whole bunch of of Christians moving towards marriage, and they started off each individually on fire for Jesus Christ. They were passionate about the things that God had called them to do. They were passionate about serving him. They were passionate about getting hold of life. And then they got together, and they become obsessed with one another. And they're no longer passionate about God, passionate about Jesus, 
loving other people. They just become insular. You need to question really carefully whether that person is right for you, if that's the case. What I say to our teenagers and our young guys, you run as fast as you can for Jesus. You run as fast as you can with the dreams that he's placed in your heart. You run with him, and then you look to your left and to your right and find someone who's running at the same pace and say, do I fancy them? You've got the start of a possibility. Got to bring life, and it's got to produce life. And then there's got to be an openness, and there's got to be a forgiveness. Verse 14, there's just a beautiful little phrase here around the dove who hides in the cleft, and the dove comes out and exposes herself. There is a hiding here. And there is an airing of linen. If you're going to move towards marriage, there has to be a moment when you are absolutely, completely, and utterly transparent with one another and honest. This is my past. This is my brokenness. These are the things that you need to know about me. These are the things that I have done. And then there needs to be a forgiveness. You are not a perfect man, and you have made mistakes. But I love you, I know you, and I forgive you. You're not a perfect woman. You have made mistakes. You're broken. But I love you, and I forgive you. Guys, listen. Do not marry an unforgiving person. Don't marry an unforgiving person. Because you marry yourself a whole bunch of grief. You stop, and you talk, and you cry, and you understand And sometimes you hold out your hand and it means that she will withdraw like a dove to a rock because she has been hurt and you talk again and you hold your hand out. Finally, you know you're ready to be married when there is a common commitment to this thing. Look at verse 15. The common commitment is to catch the foxes. The common commitment is to say, we're going to do this thing together, but we're going to be realistic about it. There's going to be some trouble in our marriage from time to time. But we are going to do everything we can to catch the foxes that eat the blossom that means that the vine doesn't grow. That's what we're going to do. That's what that means. We know there are things that are possible in our life that if we allow them into our relationship is going to mean that the foxes eat the grapes. Unforgiveness. Pornography. Extramarital sex. Ridiculous debt. Together we're going to be committed to keeping those foxes out. We're going to make sure that we walk through this thing. We're going to give ourselves every available possibility of making this marriage thing work. And we're going to walk through this thing. We are committed to this. Now I've said, and I've been quite hard about it, that this is... This is a love poem. There have been generations of incredible preachers who've made this about Jesus and his church. And, you know, I'm sure you can find Jesus and his church in it. But actually, this is a love poem. This is about how you do relationships well. God's really practical. It's about how you do marriage well. It's how you do sex well. And if we had more time, we've only got three weeks, we could talk about how to do sex in marriage. And there's a whole bunch of things that we can learn from the, these passages of Scripture. But, but there is a hint here and some parallels. The story that you find yourself in is a story of love. It's a story of a God who loves you. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. He's for you. He pursues you. He woos you. He wants you back in relationship with him. He knows that you're damaged and that you need forgiveness. He knows that you stuck the fingers up at him and ran away from him. He knows that you put him in the rearview mirror and drove away from his wisdom and his love and his purpose and his life. He knows all that stuff and he loves you and he loves you and he draws you back. And he says, if you're broken, 
I'm the king of healing. And if you messed up, I'm named after forgiveness. That's my name. Jesus, for he will save his people from this. I'm named after forgiveness. That's who I am. And if you need restoring, I do that really well. Blind people see, deaf people hear, lame people walk. Broken towns get restored in the presence of Jesus the King. So if you come here today and you think, oh man, not only was this inappropriate, but actually it's just poked a whole number of things in my heart and life that need dealing with. My marriage is not founded on the right principles and we need to go back and rethink some things and talk some things and love again. What we started at the beginning, we don't do right now and, and, and it's boring and we need to... Or I've, I've, I've taken, you know, two cans of paraffin and I've thrown a few Zippo lighters and the whole thing is just... And my life is scarred because of it and other people are scarred because of it and I just need forgiveness and restoration. You need to know that God who is here is the God who specializes in that stuff. He loves you. doesn't want to leave you broken. There's a passage of Scripture right at the end of of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. And uh, it's where Jesus is speaking to, uh, to, the, to his church. And he says in Revelation chapter 2 to a church in a place called Ephesus. He says, you're busy, you're good, and you're sound. I love you. Great church. But he says, this I hold against you. You have neglected your first love. You used to pursue me with everything. I used to be at the center of everything. And other things have now become the center of stuff. And I'm not the center. And... It's about time we redid some stuff. And the people knew how devastating that was. And then he said, but if you return to me, if you remember what it was like when we first loved me, and if you will repent for what it is like right now, and if you will redo the things you did at first, then we can go again. And I was teaching that about, I don't know, about 15 years ago at a, a conference that I was, I was at. And um, the first night of the conference, I taught from Revelation 2, um, and, and, I, and I, just, I just did that, and, um, and then a, a couple who were there, apparently, I didn't know this, but they left in a fence, and they went out, and uh, three days later at the end of the conference, they came back. They hadn't been to anything else. And they came back to the communion time, and they said, we'd like to share. And she stood up, and she said, I was offended by what was said on the first night, but I was offended because the Holy Spirit was convicting me. I just started an extramarital affair with a guy at my workplace. My husband didn't know, and we've spent the last three days talking and crying together. And I want to stand before the church, and I was thinking, her husband is standing like two yards behind her. I'm thinking, not sure I could do that. And she says, I want to stand before the church because this is my family, and I want to be accountable for what I've got to do right now. I'm quitting my job tomorrow. And uh, we're going to redo the things we did at first. We stopped dating. We stopped talking. We stopped loving one another. We were still covenanted together, but I've just broken the covenant. And so we're we're going to redo the things we did at first. Because there may be a whole number of applications from what I've said today, and I don't know because it's you and the Holy Spirit, really, but... Maybe you've, maybe you've started some fires that you need to actually repent for and ask for healing from. 
Maybe more for you, it's the fact that there's some married couples here today and actually it's become less than you imagined it could be and should be. You need to talk and you need to say, let's redo the things we did at first. I'm sorry. Maybe for some of you, you're despairing because I'd love to have that kind of relationship. I haven't got that kind of relationship. And I'd love to be able to have sex, but I can't find someone. To, you know, there's deep frustration. And I think God, who's the healer, and God, who's the forgiver, and God, who's the friend, comes alongside and says, I love you. Let's go again. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. And we thank you for your presence. And I pray, um, I pray a weed and chaff prayer. I pray once again, that which was fleshy and of the preacher and of no use to our hearts and lives, just blow it away on the wind. There's probably plenty of that. But that which was of you for our hearts, would you instruct us Would you convict us and would you encourage us by your spirit right now? Because we want to live holy lives. We want to love you and we want to love the people you put around us. And we want to do that well. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you bless us? Thank you, Lord.